America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hi, and welcome to this week's Proof Sidebar. I'm here this week with Jacinda Davis and Kevin Fitzpatrick to discuss episode 8 of our series on the cases of Lee Clark and Kane's story. And this week, we heard about Sergeant Dallas Battle. To me, Dallas Battle has always been at the center of the controversy surrounding this case. I mean, when I first learned about the story, he was sort of, you know, if not the first, then one of the first names that came up. And there was just a lot of questions about could he have done something improper or him really holding all of the answers to what happened with this investigation. So I think it was, you know, about time and really interesting to step through the look at Dallas Battle himself. I was really looking forward to interviewing him for quite a while. And then unfortunately he passed away just shortly before we started getting fully into this case and working on it and actually making trips down to Rome. So we never got a chance to. And I don't I don't know if he would talk to us. Part of me tells myself that he wouldn't talk to us anyway. So <laughs> we didn't miss out on anything. But I still remember actually getting the message that he had passed away because I mean it couldn't have been more than a, a week or two before the first trip to Rome. And I think it was a text chain between the three of us. Yeah, it was earlier that month, but he'd been in ill health for a while, I believe. And now, Dallas was one of two officers who worked the most in this case, um, although he was the one who was at the start of the case. He was the lead officer, so he was the one who knew the most about it. But we're still hopeful to speak to David Stewart, who was the other investigator who worked on it. It feels like people want to talk about it. They want to make comments about battle on the record, but they can't. You know, They're, they're being told they can't talk to us for one reason or another by Floyd County Police Department and DA's office. And plus there's the obvious, like no one wants to speak ill of the dead. It's, you know, an awkward and unfortunate topic and he is not here to defend himself. So in that sense, no, it's not fair that there's no one to speak up for him. Um, but that doesn't mean his story shouldn't be told because it's a huge part of this case. Yeah, and I do think that you have both offered people the opportunity to speak on his behalf and they've declined either because they've been told they can't speak or, they, or they've simply declined. I mean, I was there when you drove up to the widow's house and she politely declined to comment. So you have reached out to people to try and get to present his side of the story. And like you said, Susan, it, it's not a story we can't tell. We have to tell the story because... You know, as Glenn Clark says in the opening of this episode is we probably wouldn't be here looking at this case right now if, if it wasn't for Dallas Battle. Mm -hmm. And Dallas Battle had a checkered career, I guess you'd say, at the Floyd County Police Department. And later on, he was there for a very long time, almost 30 years, and he was an investigator for quite a good chunk of that. So he appears in a lot of the 
high profile cases that occurred in Floyd County over that time period. He also was involved in the Joy Watkins case. Not only did he testify about Isaac's truck allegedly not being identifiable, um, from where it crashed inside the road, he was also the officer who interrogated the prime alternate suspect um, in the case, Heath Wilson. He also was the officer that handled probably the highest profile case in Floyd County, or at least in terms of uh, a true crime notoriety, which was a Michelle Reynolds case. And I know there's a lot of talk about how he's the reason that case did not end up in a death penalty situation because of a search warrant that he improperly obtained um, and that resulted in evidence that was found being suppressed um, and a plea deal being reached as opposed to a death penalty conviction. We also heard this episode um, from the confession tape that was recorded of Kane's second interview with Dallas Battle and the one in which he says that he accidentally shot um, Brian, or at least that the gun accidentally went off while it's in his hand. And the recorded portion of the interview is short. It's about 16, 17 minutes. We don't know how long it was going on before that, but you can hear over the course of the interview how Kane starts off saying, no, I didn't do this, didn't do this, didn't do this. And by the end, he says, yes. He agrees with what Dallas is offering and says, yes, I accidentally shot Brian. And just to back up a little bit about this tape, we only recently got our hands on this tape. I think we've mentioned before we had to file a motion that was granted and we were able to duplicate the tape. And as everyone who's listened to the episode knows, it's not the greatest sound quality, but we still felt it was important to play it so people could hear it for themselves. And we don't, I, mean, I guess, did Kane give you any indication, Susan, when, when you spoke to him about how long they had been talking before they hit the record button? He did not remember, but it'd been it hadn't been like a couple minutes. There'd been an ongoing discussion. It was a longer interview, possibly as much as an hour before that. And just to remind people um, to set the scene a little bit, Kane is by himself in a room with Battle and the other sergeant who's now um, chief of police down in Floyd County. And he's 17 years old. He does not have an attorney and he does not have a parent present with him. His mom drove him down there. She, she thought that was the right thing to do. She drove him down, but she wasn't in the room with him. I spoke to, to June and she was stunned when Dallas came out to say that Kane had admitted to this killing. She was stunned. Now, what I was stunned by was when I found out that this confession tape had actually been heard by the jury. I had known that it was ultimately excluded from trial, um, that it was deemed inadmissible under Georgia law because it was obtained by literally telling Kane, say you did this and nothing will happen to you. We're not going to charge you. So I knew that the confession was ruled inadmissible, was not evidence that the jury could consider. What I hadn't known is that the jury had already heard it. I'm still baffled by this part of the case because to me, it's, it's inexplicable that a judge would not only let this tape in, um, but then when they realize they made a mistake and it shouldn't have come in at all, decide that an instruction to the jury is enough to cure the problem and that the jury will somehow be able to exclude this from their mind and not remember this or think about this when they're making their decision about guilt or innocence. There's just no possibility whatsoever. The jury's going to ignore it. Did they play the tape in totality? Yep. And remember this tape, Lee says it made him think that Kane might be guilty or he actually believed for a while that Kane either may have or must have accidentally shot Brian because of it. So if, if Lee Clark is thinking that, well, of course the jury is going to reach a conclusion of guilt. Yeah, you can understand that. The, the tape 
it's not like what you see on TV or movies where they're like yelling at him and up in his face. And, you know, he just kind of casually at the end says, yeah, it went off in my hand accidentally. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel pressured. At least that's how I heard it. I don't know if you guys agree with that. You can understand how it was, but it doesn't feel that way. I was so interested to hear it because for the longest time we had the transcript of it. And in your mind, you play out how it must have been. And it was more subtle on the tape than I imagined it in my mind. And I think it's easy to forget that he's a 17-year-old kid. He's not spoken to an attorney. He said it in the, in the episode, if I'd known that I could have just stopped the interview, I would have. It's important to remember that he, he was a kid and he was in there alone. And he also believed what Dallas Battle said about saying you did it accidentally and we can all go home. That's all the family needs to hear. That's all we need to hear. Just say these magic words and everything goes back to normal and life goes on. Right. Everything will be fine. You won't get charged. He's probably thinking he'll go back to school the next day. He, he has no idea. And like you said before, this hearing this convinced Lee for a while. So you're right. What did the jury think? And, and once you hear it, you can't unhear that. You've heard him say the words that it went off in my hand. How do you forget having heard that? And there's no discussion of this being a false confession because technically it was excluded. So it doesn't come up in closing and no one is addressing it. Like the defense is not saying, hey, remember that tape you heard? Here's why it's a false confession. Here's what we know about false confessions. Here's why this one matches perfectly. None of that comes out. So instead of like actually addressing this issue, it's just ignored, but the jurors already heard it. Um, and at that point, it seems to me unlikely that the jury is going to believe that Brian shot himself because they just heard someone confess that it was definitely not self-inflicted. So at that point, all it's left for them to decide is how and who actually did the, the shooting. We talk about a little bit in the episode, but I don't think we spell it out. And, and you, you just said it again, like this is a false confession. Why is this a false confession? You say false confession that refers to someone who is innocent and makes a false statement claiming guilt for the crime. In this case, it's either a false confession in that sense, um, and that Kane confessed something he had no guilt for, no liability for, or it's just a lie confessing to a lesser crime that he actually committed. Because the officers don't believe that Kane accidentally shot Brian. The prosecutors, well, actually the prosecutors are open to that idea because they let the jury consider the, um, an involuntary manslaughter charge against Kane. So if the jury had wanted to, they could have convicted Kane for just that, for accidentally shooting Brian and nothing else. But they instead acquitted him on that charge. But um, we know that Sergeant Battle and David Stewart don't believe that accident um, is what happened here. So he's either lying or it's a false confession. So one way or another, it's not the truth. Yes, there's no one that believes this is what Kane says happened in that interview. It actually did happen. Now, that's not to say that Maybe this was the one time he told the truth, but the evidence we have doesn't support that. And you can hear as Jacinda heard when she heard the tape for the first time, you can hear then Sergeant Mark Wallace tell Kane as he's like reenacting how the shooting happened, that no, that's not how it happened. We know the wound was closer than that. Well, that was the most striking part of the tape for me. I was curious to hear, you know, how he said he did it or whatever. But the, the moment in which his confession is, I don't know what the right word is, corrected. And there's such a debate as to how far away the gun was when it went off. 
And so that moment I found very, very striking that um, not only is he saying that he did it, but he, he seems to be getting some guidance for how he did it. Yeah, although they don't spend much time trying to fix his confession here. After he confesses, I think it's like a minute and a half left in the tape, so they wrap it up. So they very quickly just like, good enough, don't don't get too far into the weeds here, let's just take it and run. Um, but keep in mind, like when this interview happens, Wallace and Battle had just been at the funeral home and just seen Brian's body. So they're, whatever conclusions they reach there are very fresh in their minds. From what Wallace says, at least his conclusion was this was either a contact or close contact shot. And nobody calls Wallace to testify about it during the trial. No, uh, he does not testify. And there's one other part of the interview that uh, I also found striking. Um, and that's when Battle starts asking Kane about what he said the night of the shooting while at the Bowling's trailer. And here's a clip from that portion of the interview. That's why you told that officer that night. And you told me too, that you didn't kill him on purpose. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Now, first off, the reference from Kane there to Brian saving his life is about a time earlier, um, a year or two before this, when Kane had fallen to some swift water while they're swimming and Brian saved him. But also in this clip, you can hear how Sergeant Battle claims that the night of the shooting, Kane had already confessed to him and told him that he didn't kill Brian on purpose. Now, there's no record of this happening. And if it had happened that way, well, one, you would think that Battle would have made a record of it. And two, Battle would not have reached the first conclusion he reached, which was that this was an accident or self-inflicted. And instead, in this interview, he's trying to rewrite history and telling Kane that, like, oh, yeah, by the way, you told me, too, that you shot Brian, when that definitely did not happen. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's just tactics to try to confuse Kane or get him to say something, to try to trick him with saying, oh, yeah, right, I said that, I told you that, or maybe I did say that, you know? to try and bolster the case. Or alternatively, it was Dallas Battle trying to pretend he didn't screw this case up from the start. He's trying to say that, oh, I knew from the beginning something was wrong here. When in reality, everyone who talked to him during then, everyone who's aware of what the investigation was doing, seems pretty confident that Battle's first reaction was, it's self-inflicted, let's not look at it anymore, we're we're done here. I I got the sense it was tactics trying to interpret something he Kane may have said to the family from that night, like trying to put a little pressure on him, just trying to say, you, you already admitted to this. Right? We know it was you. We know it was an accident. No, we're not. Just say it. Just say it. Just say it. Mm-hmm. And just to remind people, this is this interview is taking place well before the results of the gunshot residue test comes back on Kane's hands. Had they known that the, the test would come back negative, I think this interview would have taken a very different turn. Yeah. I just think it's fantastic that we got it, that you both kept pushing and went to court to get it. I think that's amazing. I'm glad we did get it. I wish we hadn't had to actually go to court for it. Um, To me, it's very clear this was a public record should have been available all along. But 
that said, it's great we got it in the end. I think it's it shows how important it is to hear it versus read it. You know, that what we were talking about just a few minutes ago about hearing, hearing them say, no, Kane, it was it was closer than that. Like I must have read the transcript, I don't know, a couple hundred times. You too, Susan. And and that that one moment didn't come through when you just read it. You had to hear it to understand it. Yeah, the context of the remark didn't make sense until you hear him actually say it out loud. Which is just another reason why it's so important that these records are made available in public for everyone to see and hear. Unlike in Floyd County, the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, hasn't lost its tapes from its investigations into battle. So we heard this episode from their records, from their investigation into a tasing incident at the Polk County Jail. You also heard this episode about how, despite the fact that Battle lost his job for this, um, he was not ultimately prosecuted. Um, twice they attempted to get a grand jury to indict him, and for whatever reason, despite you know pretty unambiguous evidence of what happened, uh, the grand jury refused to indict him. This tasing video, which we will put on our site and everyone can go and, and see for themselves, I remember first seeing this shortly before Dallas passed away and shortly before our first trip to Rome and just being stunned by it because I couldn't come up with any scenario in my head which you could be tasing someone that is restrained in a chip. And that right away made me want to dig into this case even, even further. Because yeah. it's, hard to, it's hard to explain to people the reaction. I mean, in the episode, you hear Glenn's reaction to seeing this video for the first time. And I was right there when he saw it. And I think Glenn was completely stunned. He is a person with an incredible moral compass and knowing right from wrong. And he was taken aback and knowing that this was the man accusing his son of being involved in a murder. Can't imagine how difficult it must have been for him to see that. What did he say? He, this is a man who has a lot of evil inside of him. Is that what he said? A lot of hate. A lot of hate inside of him. And it's an incredible tape and it's hard to unsee that. And it's also the only reason that Battle faced any repercussions at all, because this is not the first tasing incident that happens at the jail that day. Um, Kaufman was actually tased earlier that same night in a different cell. But because during that tasing incident, the camera was not in the cell, but outside the cell, there's no repercussions for the officers involved. There's no evidence that the tasing was not justified. Although we do hear Officer Hudson say to the GBI investigator, when asked why Battle was tasing Kaufman, um, Officer Hudson says there was no reason for it, that Kaufman was against the wall, not resisting, did nothing to justify it. And yet Battle had just opened the door, pointed his taser in, fired it. And then when Kaufman's asking, why'd you tase me? Why'd you tase me? Battle falsely says, because you lunged at me, even though that never occurred. But it's not until he's moved to another cell that actually has a camera where battle is put under investigation. It's because of the tape that anything happens. Absent that tape, there'd be no way to show that Kaufman had not justified the use of force. But the tape makes it very clear that no, the tasing was in no way justified. And that literally battle just made sure this man was restrained so that he could tase him without him being able to resist. You know what's surprising to me is that even, so battle, we can see in the video that battle walks into the room he tightens the restraint because he ha Kaufman had gotten his hand out of the restraint, but he puts it back in. Battle walks in the room and tightens it. 
and then Battle tases him. And while he's being tased, his hand comes back out. It doesn't look like it comes back out on purpose. It's, he, he looks like he's in pain and is, you know, he's just reacting. But as soon as he realizes his hand goes back in, I was just surprised like that he was able to get out of their restraints a second time during that whole incident. Apparently the chair was partially broken or the restraint was not working right, is what Hudson says in his interview. But yeah, you can see that even though, so the first time that Battle jabs the taser into him, he does not come loose. He's, you know, straining against the restraints, but nothing happens. It's the second time the Battle tases him in a new spot that you can see him kind of flail and his arm pops loose. But rather than like keep it out to defend himself against this guy who's tasing him, you can just see him like panic and rush to get his hand back through the straps. That's how scared he is of what Battle's doing, that rather than trying to defend himself, he's just trying to make sure there's no possible reason for Battle to keep tasing him. So yeah, Battle lost his job at the Polk County Jail. He retired after that. He did not go back to law enforcement. Like we said, there was no indictment. So there were no criminal repercussions for him. Um, interestingly, there was a civil suit. And civil suits against officers are hard to win, very hard to win. Um, and even hard to win in the 11th Circuit where this took place because of qualified immunity. So in most cases, you try and bring a civil lawsuit against an officer who's used force against you wrongfully. Um, even if it was wrongful, you're still going to lose because the court's going to find that qualified immunity applies. Here, the 11th Circuit ruled in favor of Brandon Kaufman and said that there was no qualified immunity, that there was no possible way that Battle could not have known what he did was unconstitutional. So that case was allowed to proceed and reach the settlement. Uh, it's also why we couldn't speak to Brandon Kaufman because the terms of the settlement seems like they barred him from talking about the case himself. What's coming up on the next episode? Next week, we hear about Charlie Childers, who is the only eyewitness to identify Lee Clark as being present that night. And according to Dallas Battle, shortly after the shot was fired, uh, Charlie Childers saw Lee Clark running through the bowling's front yard. You guys found the interpreter who interpreted for Charlie in court and you drove to her house and you spent quite a bit of time in there. And I will say the looks on your faces when you came out was quite something when you learned what she thought and what it was like to go through interpreting for Charlie in court. Thanks for listening. And we're back on Monday with episode nine. If you have any questions for future sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we're Proof Crime Pod. You can also find me on Twitter at the TheViewFromLL2 and on Instagram at SOOSimp. And you can now find Jacinda on Instagram as well at JacindaProof. 